Welcome to Concordia Journal Currents. Here we are at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. My name is Jeff Kloa, and I'm here today with Dr. Paul Robinson, Chairman of the Department of Historical Theology and author of a new book titled Martin Luther, A Life Reformed. And we're here to talk today with Paul about his new book. Welcome, Paul. Thanks. Glad to be here, Jeff. Well, thank you for this book. Very excited to have a brand new book from one of our faculty members on, well, the person our uh, Lutheran church is named after, Martin Luther himself. Uh, obviously, Paul, you've taught Luther for some years now at the seminary. You've taught Lutheran Reformation. You've used other textbooks in your classes. Why does the world need another book about Martin Luther? That's a really good question, and that was the question I pondered um, when considering whether to do this book or not. Um, but this book has a very specific audience in mind. It's part of a series of college textbook biographies. So the audience is college students maybe taking a Western Civilization course or something. And this is a book that could be used as supplemental reading in that course. So that means a couple of things for the way it's written. Uh, first, there is not as much knowledge assumed, particularly about the Middle Ages and about theology as there might be in a typical Luther biography. Okay. I've done my best in the limited pages to explain everything really clearly and not take a lot for granted. Mm, okay. The other thing I tried to do was be somewhat transparent about how historians work. Mm. In other words, I will often make the point that there are varying interpretations of something, or that our sources for a particular part of Luther's life are just not that clear, or there aren't that many of them. Mm. The, the organization of the book helps that too, in that each section has a part titled Writing History where I take a particular debate in historiography, in other words, a topic that historians have argued about that relates to the life of Luther. Mm -hmm. And I've given various interpretations and sort of explained how, how we try to sort these things out now. So what we have is not just a collection of facts about Martin Luther, like his birth date and when he died and well, various writings. We do have that. I've tried to show that there's a little more going on, though, in the way historians present this. Uh, because so, you're, so you're making things up. Sometimes, you know, there is a narrative here. Well, but it also relates to why another Luther biography, right. in a sense, because we have so much about and really from Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. He wrote uh, what fills hundreds of huge volumes in the critical edition of his works. Right. So there are always, um, if not new facts about Luther, new ways to present the facts we have, um, different emphases, different interpretations. Interesting. Now, I, I do find it interesting that, uh, you know, you mentioned the page length and the target audience. This book is published in a series titled Library of World Biography. And, and it's interesting to list some of the other uh, uh, figures that are featured in this series, such as Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, uh, Vasco da Gama, St. Augustine, we could sort of understand, but then Fidel Castro. Mm -hmm. So to put Luther in that uh, mm -hmm. uh, hierarchy, uh, did that affect the writing at all? Somewhat, in the sense that the purpose of the series is to highlight uh, different regions, different currents uh, in world history. Okay. Uh, so that's why you have the choice of uh, 
people from Asia, right. Europeans, Fidel Castro fits in for that reason. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at Luther not just as Martin Luther the reformer, but as someone who is a critical figure in European history and whose life reflects what's going on in world history ah. in Europe at that time. Ah, so Luther within his context. Uh, it's just very much figures. a part of the book, yeah, right. Interesting. Um, well, let me ask you this for, for uh, our readers. Why, why is it important to study Luther uh, and his theology, <laughs> his life and theology? What contribution does that make to our uh, life and dialogue today? Well, like I said, Luther is obviously a renowned theologian. Um, people will refer to him even if they don't know exactly what he stood for and what he wrote. Um, mm -hmm. But he was also a really uh, pivotal figure in European history uh, for things like um, literature in the vernacular. Mm. Right. He is really the one who created modern German through right. his translation of the Bible. Um, another thing that uh, a lot of people don't know, but almost anybody who's ever studied education knows, is that Luther was the, probably the first proponent of public schools. Hmm. That he actually asked, now uh, for religious reasons, but he right. proposed that the cities and municipalities in Germany pay for schools hmm. for both boys and girls, which was kind of another novelty at that time. Well, there goes the separation of church and state, huh? Well, Luther had a very different <laughs> understanding of that than we typically do. Well, speaking of different understandings, I mean, are there some... Uh, uh, misunderstandings or uh, I hesitate to use the word fables but but uh, things often repeated about Luther that needed a bit of uh, correcting or addressing yeah now I would not put this in the category of fable or, or even misunderstanding but it is, is really important um, for this audience particularly but I think for everybody in general to address Luther's writings about the Jews mm. um, right. Because this is another thing that most people, if they know anything about Martin Luther, right. will know that he said some horrible things about how the Jews should be treated. Well, right, you can move from Luther to Hitler. To Hitler, right. exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and it's important for Lutherans particularly, but I think for Protestants generally, uh, to confront this sort of thing. Hmm. And, and there are really two errors you can make on this. One is to sort of make Luther directly responsible for the Holocaust. Right. Um, which, when you look at history, when you look at this in context, you really can't do. Mm -hmm. um, and let me address this one first, and I'll get to the other error. Um, that's really to misunderstand Luther's words and uh, his attitudes. He was not racially anti-Semitic. Okay. His problem was with the propagation of the Jewish faith mm -hmm. in Europe. Um, early in his career, he wrote some very positive things about the Jews. He assumed that they, like everybody else, had been sort of been misled, led astray by the papal church and its uh. abuses and errors. He assumed that a pure teaching of the gospel would bring the Jews into Christianity. Who, after all, are reading the same Old Testament. Reading the same Old right. Testament, exactly. Right. Now, that didn't happen. And later in his life, he responded to some writings that were in circulation about the Jews. Um, he, for whatever reason, at least acted as if he believed a lot of the slander about the Jews that had been common in Europe for a long time. And, and began writing against the Jews in that vein. So he, he began to see them as enemies of the gospel. Hmm. 
So I, this is one way to explain his harsh language. Right. Uh, Luther writes with harsh and abusive language about anybody, anybody he considers exactly. an enemy of the gospel, yeah, including the Pope. Right. Right. You know, the difference with the Jews, and, and this is where we get to the other error, which is people who go too far to defend Luther. Mm. I, I don't want to be heard as doing that. He was wrong about this. He was wrong about a lot of things, and, and, and this was a big one. Um, the difference between um, slandering the Pope and slandering the Jews is that the Pope can take care of himself. <laughs> okay, the Jews were already yeah, an oppressed already, minority. Yeah, they were in a very difficult position in Europe, and, and really, people didn't need any didn't need Luther's right. encouragement to persecute the so Jews. So they mis mistook his theological perspective for a social. Well, uh, and, and because sense. he suggested, you know, burn their books kick them out of the synagogues, kick them out of their homes. You know, it, it was not, um, mm. not something that I would want to defend. Right. You can explain it, I wouldn't want to defend, defend. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting. Uh, a lesson that the church didn't learn, unfortunately, for no, quite some time. No, that's right. right. Um, and, and there's another one now, if, if that's enough on the Jews. Uh, another misunderstanding, and this is one that I think I deal a lot uh, with other Lutherans on, or other Protestants. Uh, which is, when did Luther break with the church? Mm. Why okay. did Luther break with the church? What's his view October of the 31. church? Yeah, see, okay. the kind of the, this gets into myth a little bit. Right. The myth is that um, in October 1517, Luther suddenly figured out the whole church was corrupt. Something had to be done about it. He wrote 95 theses, nailed them to the door, and broke with Rome and started the Lutheran church. Right. Um, in fact, Luther never broke with the church. I, I think he would have mm. said the church broke with him, okay. um, probably when he was excommunicated in January of 1521. That would be a, well, a would convenient be a, yeah, date a to date, date that yeah. break. January 1521? Um, right. Okay, so you have to move Reformation Day a little bit, but anyway, continue. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but he would say he never broke with the church. Right. Um, he, he was kicked out of the papal church, which he eventually came to regard as really not the church at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so there's a little mythology uh, surrounding that, and like you said, particularly with the 95 Theses and what's in those. Mm -hmm. um, the 95 Theses are really fairly conservative theologically. The tone can be read as a criticism of the papacy, mm -hmm. but the actual content is perfectly in line with the official church teaching on indulgences. The problem was mm -hmm. the preaching had gone past what the church had officially taught. And that's what uh, Luther was really pointing out. Uh, so the theses are more about pastoral care than they are about uh, a criticism of abuses in the church kind of for their own sake. Hmm. So it's sort of like Luther criticizing the TV preachers of his day. Yeah, exactly. It's a good parallel. Oh, okay. Well, that is, that is helpful. Yeah. Um, even if we do have to push back the anniversary of the Reformation uh, well, four more years. Well, we just celebrate it several times, yeah. I suppose. Well, every time we preach the gospel, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. Um, well, Luther, of course, uh, his life is full of wonderful stories and uh, quips and quotes and table talk sorts of things. Is there a particular story that you came across and included in the book that uh, illustrates for you uh, sort of Luther the person? Well, let me give you two. One, one is another, I've always got two answers okay. for this. One is kind of another demythologizing. Uh, a moment in Luther's life everybody knows is he's at the Diet of Worms right. before Emperor Charles V mm -hmm. and stands there and makes his speech, here I stand, 
I can do no other. God help me. Right. Amen. And then you got to have the right tone of voice. Right. And, and, and all the movies do the right. shot. Right. Right. Um, he may or may not actually have said those last words. So help me God? Yeah. Okay. Or, or here I stand. Oh, here I stand. He may or may not okay. have said that. Uh, the sources kind of conflict on that mm -hmm. point. Um, but the other thing that people don't usually put into that is that Luther had been asked the same question the day before and had asked for 24 hours to think oh, about right. it and give an answer. Right. Now, and this was in a Luther movie. I do remember yeah, that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The people don't always remember this, though. Yeah. And, and we have this picture of him, which is accurate in that he's willing to make a bold confession before Charles, but it's not rash. I, I think a uh, lot of people think oh, about yeah. Luther as a rash sort of person who just bursts in and speaks kind of without thinking, and that's really not the case. Mm. He was incredibly intelligent and thoughtful, and, and this was a moment that he did ponder mm -hmm. somewhat as to what he should do. Which I suppose uh, makes the, the comment or the, the statement, if it is true, even more profound in a sense. Sure. It's not just something he, he whipped off off the cuff. Right, path, right. Uh, but recognize the consequences, right. yet it made the stand anyway. And, and afterward, um, he, he often wondered if he should have done that. Hmm. Um, he would kind of have these arguments with himself and ask, you know, should I have said that? Should I have done that? And then mm -hmm. he would say, yes, of course I should have. I'm confessing the gospel. And then he'd sort of berate himself for not being even bolder at the time. But the point yeah. is he did reflect right. on these things. He mm -hmm. did think about them. Hmm. Now, the other one I didn't want to lead with because it's one of these strange stories from the Reformation, okay. which is uh, Philip of Hesse and his two wives. Okay, How, who's Philip of Hesse? Philip of Hesse was one of the main Lutheran princes. Um, okay. one of the political leaders who was really responsible for preserving and promoting uh, Luther's Reformation. Okay. Um, like a lot of the nobility, his marriage had been arranged for political reasons. Mm -hmm. um, he and his wife didn't really get along. Shock me. Yeah. And he did not have a male heir. Now, when you're a hereditary prince, this creates a political issue. And like a lot of other princes in this situation, Henry the Eighth. Henry the Eighth is a good example. Like Henry the Eighth, Philip didn't remain faithful to his wife. Now, Philip also felt incredibly guilty about this, mm. about his affairs, to the point that he wasn't actually going to communion anymore. Hmm. And so he went to Luther with this as kind of a pastoral problem. What should I do? Here's my situation. Um, Luther's final advice to him was simply to marry a second wife, hmm. but keep it quiet. Now, the way Luther arrived at this wow. solution and what he does with it, I think, is what illustrates Luther's personality and his approach to things. Hmm. First, his assumption in dealing with Philip is that in this life, people are constantly in situations where there isn't a good choice. You're confronted right. with an array of bad choices. So what do you do in that case? Well, then Luther obviously would look to Scripture. Mm -hmm. And there he sees a ruler's duty to his subjects to have political stability. Mm -hmm. He sees prohibitions of divorce. In other words, it's not a solution to divorce right. his wife and marry someone else. Right. And then he looks to the Old Testament and sees the example of the patriarchs who had more than one wife. And right. he said, so this is probably the best of the bad choices we're faced with here, hmm. is simply take another wife. Hmm. Um, now, this didn't work out very well at all. 
this, this turned out to be incredibly bad advice, and in retrospect, Luther recognized that. Um, apparently, and this is another insight into Luther's character, uh, he put too much weight on Philip's kind of pious protestations about uh, how he felt about the situation. Luther right. was um, willing to kind of believe the best about everybody, especially people he knew. Mm. Uh, so he, he took this too much at face right. value when he gave his advice and found out later that it wasn't quite Perfect. as innocent and pious yeah. as Philip presented it. Mm. Um, but the other thing is, having done this, Luther didn't dwell on it. He, he kind of said, it turned out to be a mistake, let's move on to something else. Hmm. This in contrast to Philip Melanchthon, who was also involved, and literally became ill um, in the aftermath, feeling guilty over the oh. role he had played in it. Oh, okay. um, and Luther was not like that, I, I think which explains a lot about how he is able to do what he did. Um, it's the way he writes. Hmm. He, he will address a situation write copiously about it, and then move on to something else mm -hmm. and kind of forget about it. And, and if he was wrong 10 years ago, so what? He's well, written so much since then, it doesn't matter. That's <laughs> what the gospel is all about, is it not? Right? If I messed right. up? And, and, and that's, that's another big part of this. He's thinking, you know, I'm doing my best, and uh, God's forgiveness is there when the mistakes are made, right. and, and you just keep moving keep ahead. Keep moving along with, yeah. with what you're called to do. Right. That's a good insight. Uh, well, I suppose people will buy the book just for that story. Uh, I, think, I think I'll have to <laughs> there, read There are a couple <laughs> in there. I won't <laughs> right. give them all away. <laughs> yeah, okay, so there, there's more to come, even better ones. Huh? Uh, the one incident I'm always intrigued by or, or phrase that Luther might have said is uh, if, the, if, he, if he knew the world was going to end tomorrow, he would plant a tree. Is that apocryphal or true? And, and if it's true, what did he mean by that? Nobody has ever been able to find that quote in Luther's oh, works. Shoot. It's a it's, great quote. No, it's it's often quote. cited, yeah. um, but it's... In the whole Weimar edition, you comb through it, it's just not there. Uh, well, I'm going to make him say it because I yeah. want to use it for an article. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, great. Well, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything that uh, you would consider probably the most important thing for people to know today about Martin Luther? I think the most important thing for people to realize about Luther is that his entire life, his every activity, was driven by his understanding of God's grace and his understanding of the gospel. That um, when he came to this understanding based on scripture, that he was saved not by what he did, but by what Christ had done for him. And that this came solely by his faith, by his trust in Christ. Um, everything in his life fell into line in service to that idea. Mm. Now, and this is where it's important, I think, to distinguish between Luther's understandings, Luther's ideas, his life, and the Reformation. Okay. Because to say Luther is driven totally by that, and you need to understand that to make sense out of Luther's life, mm -hmm. doesn't mean the Reformation is only about that. Hmm. Uh, people will embrace the Reformation and promote it for a variety of reasons, and you can't kind of rule uh. out social, economic, political well, factors. Yeah. And, and Luther is certainly willing to play to those at times. But mm -hmm. for him, everything is always in service that understanding of the gospel. gospel. Right. Wow. Fascinating. And, and what's interesting is um, his account of that gospel discovery 
uh, is something that there's a huge argument about when to date it. Mm, when this actually right, happened, right. what it actually was. The tower experience. Um, it right. seems pretty clear yeah, right. that really um, we should talk about a process over a number of years as Luther began to study scripture, began to understand what the gospel was, that if there was a single moment, um, it wasn't as if this was sort of a sudden mystical insight, mm. that it was a culmination of years of work and study. Well, that's perhaps a helpful pastoral insight, uh, uh, you know, to when we're working with individuals who are new to the faith, growing in the faith, you know, at what point are they, you know, does, does yeah, the light bulb right, go off? Well, right. it might, there might never be a light bulb. Right. It, and, might, and, it might be a lifetime process. And to go back to the subtitle of the book, A Life Reform, this is one of the themes I was working with, is mm -hmm. that throughout his life, Luther is seeing how this plays out. Mm -hmm. It's never sort of there and static. Um, the gospel for him is never there as sort of a relic or talisman. It, it's always a, a living force in his life. His life is constantly being reformed, reshaped, mm -hmm. sometimes intentionally, sometimes right. not, by this understanding of the gospel. Right, right. Wow. So not just a figure of history, but a, an example of a Christian life. And, right. Uh, worth pondering and, for that reason. And, and even if you're looking at Luther as a historical figure, as the biography mostly does, right. you can't understand him without understanding his faith. Wow, excellent. Well, that's uh, probably a good place to wrap up. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe a question that uh, many in our audience would have, is this a book that you could uh, recommend a pastor to pass off to a layperson who's interested in Luther? Is that sort of a good target audience for this? I, I think it would be very accessible for someone like that. Like I said, it's, it's meant primarily for classroom, for college mm -hmm. students, but I think it could easily and profitably be read by just about anybody. Um, it, it's not overly long, mm -hmm. you know, so you, you get right. a good sense of Luther's life in... in uh, about, what, 150 pages? Right. Oh, 100 pages. About 100 yeah. pages. Right. There's a lot of type on the page, but... <laughs> <laughs> small type. Yeah. But not too small. No. Yeah. Good. Well, uh, very uh, pleased to recommend to you uh, Dr. Paul Robinson's new book, Martin Luther, A Life Reformed, uh, published by Longman, and the price range is about $20, uh, available at booksellers everywhere. Thank you for listening to Concordia Journal Currents.